0: Hi hey there, and welcome to season two of the Kraken Busters, where we are exploring the great sea monster crisis of 1987. This is episode 207 Going Back In. I'm Keith Pilley. First off, though, I would once again like to kick things off with some listener response. Uh, By email, Kate from Dublin asks, What the heck kind of ship name is Flag Island? That's a weird name. And, well, thanks for your question there, Kate. I I do have to disagree with you, though. I think it's a pretty reasonable name, and uh, let's get into why. For a long time now, I mean, um, you know, Early 20th century, at least, and I think further back, uh, the navies had an actual, pretty structured system for ship names. The the details change a bit over time, um, and so like if you look back at World War II era ships, it's it's a little bit different. But um, you know, for the time period we're talking about now, it's been the same for quite a while. Basically, the the big picture is uh, different types of ships just have different themed names. This way, if you know how to listen for it. The name of the ship will also tell you what kind of ship it is. So in the modern era, it's something like this. Aircraft carriers are named for either notable past ships, which is why there's pretty much always a USS Enterprise. Um, It has nothing to do with Star Trek. Uh, they they ripped off the Navy, actually. Um, or, or very prominent naval-related or political people like Chester Nimitz or Thomas Dewey. Nuclear missile subs are named after states like the USS Ohio. Now, back in the old system, it was battleships, but... Uh, you now they're old news. Now, nuclear attack subs are named after cities, like the needlessly awkwardly named USS Minneapolis-St. Paul. For what it's worth, her crew just calls her the Minneapolis because, well, uh, destroyers and frigates are named after notable people who just aren't as prominent as uh, you know to be at the aircraft carrier level. So you get like the uh, USS Jorge Estrada or the destroyer USS Rich Trumbull, uh, you know, to pick two with uh, you know. Whose names should be familiar? Um, as with carriers, uh, also these are usually referred to just by their last name. So those two would be known as the Estrada or the Trumbull most of the time. Um, you know, uh, same carriers. It's it's not the Chester Nimitz. I mean, it is, but everyone just refers to it as the Nimitz. Anyway, and most relevant to us here, um, amphibious assault ships are named after battles, like the USS Tarawa or our friend under discussion, the USS Flag Island. The Battle of Flag Island, of course, was part of the wider crisis of the Japanese Civil War. It was the point that nearly took the U.S. and USS over the brink, the one time when U.S. forces got directly engaged in fighting. This was on the island of Iterup in the Kurils. Kurils? I've never known how to pronounce that. I should. When a battalion of Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Flagg, landed and fought a group of Japanese loyalist troops, who it turns out were led by Soviet advisors, who were setting up an anti ship missile battery. It's a weird little blip in American history, but a pretty big deal if you're a Marine. You know, they're really into the institutional pride thing. And the uh, general American military distaste for Japanese place names meant that it pretty quickly stopped being referred to as the Battle of Iderup and instead became the Battle of Flag Island, with Jimmy Flag posthumously getting an island unofficially named after him. So yeah, that's what's up with the Flag Island. And now, back to our story. So, last week we did some table setting. First, I walked us through a very high-level overview of the nature of the shadow struggle between superpower intelligence agencies during the Cold War. Back in the main narrative, the CIA prepared some fake quote-unquote evidence to be planted in the North Atlantic to justify the cover story for their quarantine of the Sea Monster Zone, and then shipped that evidence up to Javier Delgado's Detachment 69 team holding station in the North Atlantic. And then, finally, National Security Advisor Juliana Burke put the cover-up plan in motion by announcing that the Navy was enforcing a quarantine because of a massive radiation leak in the North Atlantic from a ship that she hinted but didn't openly say was Soviet. The Soviets denied this, but the world shrugged. Like I said last week, of course they'd say that. This week, the Flag Island goes back in to plant some evidence, with a carrier battle group escorting it for safety. By the evening of May 9th, Greenwich Mean Time, U.S. Navy Task Force 17 was ready to enter the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone, cordon on their evidence-planting mission, and we'll join them there in a second. But first, I'd like to bounce back to Washington. Because as Task Force 17 was getting ready to roll, a briefing was happening at the White House that I'd like to talk about. If you remember from the last episode, President Kennedy had asked to talk to Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry, the pair who had been central architects of the American victory over the sea monsters the first time around. Both were retired now. Trumbull lived in San Diego, where he still picked up some work as a naval consultant, and Hendry lived in Santa Fe. But both hurried to Washington when contacted. They both knew that there was only one reason they'd be getting an urgent summons to the White House. My Freedom of Information Act requests only got me some heavily redacted meeting notes, and Juliana Burke was reluctant to go far beyond the bounds of what was declassified, so I only have some high-level notes about what happened at that briefing. I don't know for sure who was there, beyond Kennedy, his brothers, of course, Burke, Secretary of Defense Annoyer, and Admiral Barbara Dunton, the commander of the U.S. Atlantic Fleet. I do know that Hendry and Trumbull came in very alarmed. As I mentioned previously, the two of them spent their post-war years trying to prepare the Navy for what it should do if an outbreak ever happened again. And their war games always came out disastrous. Their point of view was that the only real range of choices that existed here was what level of disaster this would result in. The President's brother Jack, who tended to do an outsized amount of the talking in meetings when he was present, kept shooting back at them that naval firepower had progressed a long way since the 60s especially anti-sea monster weaponry. And maybe that was true, Trumbull responded. But if so, the Navy had damn well better act as fast as possible, while the outbreak was still pretty tightly constrained geographically, and while the newly emerging primary class creatures, and so far the only one confirmed was Prince Jellyfish, the giant jellyfish that a D-69 helicopter pilot had reported. But the crew of the Flag Island had also spotted an enormous shark fin sticking out of the water off in the distance. Anyway, before these primaries got too big to handle, and the lesser creatures got too numerous, Hendry added that while she didn't disagree, she didn't expect this all-out attack to be decisive, and what Kennedy needed to be doing right now was preparing the country for another long slog, and working feverishly to recreate something like their Project Mousetrap from the late 40s and early 50s, to steadily whittle down the outbreak over the course of a few years. The two of them went back and forth with Jack Kennedy for an hour or so before RFK thanked them and asked them to leave, but uh, you know, could they please stick around in Washington in case they were needed for further consultations. They left, I'm told, for the bar at the Willard Hotel, where the two of them proceeded to have several rounds of drinks and muttered darkly that Kennedy was just fucking it up. So Yeah. As this meeting was winding down on the evening of May 9th, Task Force 17 moved within the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone cordon, escorting the Flag Island. TF-17 was, of course, a U.S. Navy force, centered around the aircraft carriers Enterprise and Nimitz and their screening vessels. On board the Flag Island was Javier Delgado and his D-69 team. Delgado and the Flag Island's commander, Captain Vince Bullock, coordinated closely with Admiral Matt Yellen on board the Nimitz, the overall commander of the force. I was lucky enough to be able to talk to Delgado during my research for this season, and I'm going to quote him at length here. Quote, I hated that fucking mission. Have I mentioned that? Don't worry, I'll mention it again. It was a dog shit mission. But whatever, that was the freaks for you. You take the good with the bad. We did pretty well for ourselves on perks, and the price for that was that when Abernathy told you, here's a dog shit mission, and you're going to do it, and you're going to like it, well, you did it. And you didn't even have to work too hard on pretending to like it. Abernathy was a pretty good boss. So okay, my colleagues Hickok and uh, Ski Pass. Uh, okay, Keith breaking in here. This is a thing you're going to hear from Delgado a lot as he tries to talk his way around the D sixty nine habit of referring to team members by code name without blowing their actual code names because some of them are still active and everything they did was super classified. Okay, anyway. Um, Hickok and a ski pass flew their Chinook back in from Greenland with a load of fucked up Russian ship parts and a couple of kegs of fallout. Great. Just great. And Bullock was fucking thrilled to have that stuff loaded onto his ship. But like I said, you don't really have to pretend to like it, but you do have to do it. So Bullock and I had been on the horn with Yellen over on the Nimitz, and we had the details worked out more or less. We needed to steam about 18 hours into the exclusion zone, bearing about 030 and try to make our way a little bit east of the spot where we'd had our first encounter. The idea was to plant the shit on the eastern side of the exclusion zone, and to give it all a better chance of riding the prevailing winds and currents out of the zone. A bunch of Allied ships were running the cordon over there on that side, and the brass thought it was important that the evidence get found by someone other than American ships. The folks in Langley had also done some careful leaking or whatever to make sure that some friendly international journalists were on boats downwind of the planned drop zone, too. Okay, fine. Problem was, of course, that the water up there was full of goddamn sea monsters. You know, the reason we were staging this elaborate bullshit tableau. We'd gotten the flag island out of the shit once, but it hadn't been easy, and we'd burned off a bunch of specialized ammo that we hadn't been able to resupply yet. But this time we had a whole fucking carrier battle group to cover us. And I gotta hand it to Matt Yellen. He was a fighting son of a bitch. The screen for his carriers included eight destroyers and a couple of frigates. And us, theoretically, but that was just a goddamn fig leaf. He had most of his tin cans out in front of us, ready to start cutting a path through tentacles as soon as they saw them. I think I'd mentioned this before, that since the 40s, the Navy had required every ship to carry some anti-monster munitions, just in case. Not a lot, not always super effective, but with this many ships there was a decent amount. Napalm, flechette rounds, shit like that. Of course, with a carrier battle group, what Yellen really had at his disposal was a shitload of air assets, and he tried to put them to use. F-14s couldn't carry much that was likely to be much use against sea monsters, but both carriers had a decent load of napalm canisters that A-6s and 7s could carry. Carriers also had a slew of anti-submarine warfare planes that could be loaded up with airdropped depth charges. And between the carriers and the other ships in the force, including ours, there was just a shitload of choppers that could be in the air at all times, loaded up with depth charges or napalm canisters. So as we started moving into the danger zone, the air around the task force was just absolutely packed with aircraft just loaded for bear choppers were swarming around close and low and there were always 10 or 12 a6s and 7s orbiting over the group loaded with the heavier shit and then f-14s running combat air patrol up above them just for safety's sake since we didn't know what kind of shit the russians might be up to out here i gotta tell you it was something standing out on a bridge wing of the flag island and seeing this fucking armada all around i still didn't like the mission or the way we were doing it but i did feel like a kid who finally got to play with the cool toys End quote. At about 10.30 local time on the night of the 9th, the task force made its initial sea monster contact. Captain of the USS Jorge Estrada, one of the forward ships, issued a radio call-out that the ship's bow and stern had been ensnared by tentacles. Per current Navy doctrine, the ship's onboard marine detachment swarmed the tentacles with combat chainsaws and flamethrowers and successfully got them to detach without casualties." Helicopters immediately rushed in and blanketed the water around the Estrada with napalm and depth charges. The ship reported minor cosmetic damage, but no degradation to her fighting capacity. So the first round went to the U.S. Navy. The pattern continued through the night. Task Force 17 continued to the northeast, encountering attacks by what in 1948 would have been classified as lesser sea creatures, usually octopi or krakens. In each case, the tentacles were detached either by shipboard marines or by the D-69 attack hovercraft operating out of the flag island, and then air assets scoured the sea to drive the attackers away. By the time the sun began to rise, just a bit after 4 a.m. on the 10th, the force was just a few hours from the drop zone, and although some ships were banged up and some ammunition stockpiles were depleted, things were looking good for the completion of the mission. And then, at 4.22 a.m., things got weird. It started with a radio call from the frigate King, one of the formation's forward ships on the right side, announcing that one of their shipboard lookouts thought they'd seen a submarine periscope off to the east. The task force wasn't here to care about submarines, of course, but it was standard Navy procedure not to let things like that go uninvestigated. So Admiral Yellen, in CIC on the Nimitz, ordered the pair of F-14 Tomcats on patrol over the formation to swing over and take a look. And here, once again, I'm going to turn back to the first-hand account of this that I got from Javier Delgado. Quote, I was in CIC on the Flag Island as the sun was coming up. Part of me had wanted to be out there on the hovercraft with Coastie through the night, but I knew that we were getting close to the nut of the mission, and since it was my show, I wanted to be fresh-ish. So I'd grabbed 40 winks overnight and was just getting back on duty when the shit hit the fan. I heard the call come out from the king about the periscope sighting, and I shrugged it off. Subs? Who gives a shit? It was probably nothing, and even if it was a Russian sub, in water full of sea monsters, they were going to have more trouble than they could handle pretty soon. I was standing there, wondering about just how strong the hulls were on Russian subs, as opposed to, say, the crush strength of old Blackjack Kraken used to have, when I heard yellin', send the Tomcats on patrol over to take a look. Fine, I figured. Let the pretty boys actually make themselves useful for the first time on the mission. It didn't take them long to get over, but holy shit was it something when they got there. We had the radio patched in live over the CIC speakers, so we heard it all as it went down. The kid flying the lead Tomcat, a lieutenant commander named Mitchell called out that he had a visual on something sticking out of the water and could see something under the surface, but it was tough to tell what it was in all that churn. Might have been a sub, but if it was, it was a really fucking big one. Then he got on top of it, and I gotta give this kid credit. He kept his cool, reported that, nope, it was not a sub, Looked pretty sure like it was a shark. What the king had been seeing was a goddamn shark fin, straight on, bone white, and the biggest goddamn shark any of us had ever heard of. Maybe 400 feet long, Mitchell said, which would make the son of a bitch pretty close to the size of a Knox-class frigate. And speaking of which, the fucking thing was on an intercept course for the king. Yellen called a bunch of the helos over, but they couldn't do anything more than try to drop depth charges on it. But here's the thing about depth charges. They need some depth. Even set to their shallowest setting, they just went down far enough before they blew that they just kind of shook the big fucking white shark around in the water. And that's if they could even hit it, because one thing that's been true as long as we've been trying to drop explosive shit onto the ocean, it's that it's tough to hit the target if the target's moving fast through the water. I was a little flummoxed. This was another new primary class creature, it seemed like. This on top of the big fucking jellyfish we'd seen a few days before. What the fuck were we doing putting all this effort into a cover-up when there was a real fucking situation brewing out here? But again, the mission's the mission, mine is not to reason why, etc. No doubt some wise men back in Washington were making the very best possible use of the precious time we were buying them out here with our bullshit. Right now, enacting said bullshit somehow seemed to mean keeping a giant fucking monster shark from eating a frigate. We still had the aircom frequency piped into the speakers in CIC. And it was just a chaotic mess, a yelling staff barking out orders to choppers and the helo pilots reporting back that this didn't work and that didn't work and oh by the way the fucking shark was still closing on the king and running shallower and shallower as he came. I guess the goddamn fin was sticking all the way up into the air now and nobody was going to mistake it for a periscope anymore. Then that kid Mitchell in the Tomcat comes on just cuts through the chatter. You could tell he was working as hard as he could to keep his cool. Ghost Rider requests clearance at the deck, or some kind of pilot shit like that, he says. You helos get clear. This fucker's going to have to surface to get the king. I'm going to see if I can't shoot the son of a bitch down the throat when he tries. I walked over to a bank of radar stations and craned over one of the operators to look at his screen. And you could see it all shape up. The helos all pulled clear. I think the pilots were just happy that somebody had an idea of what the fuck to do here. And Mitchell lined himself up on a reciprocal bearing to the shark, heading right for it as close to the water as that time cat would go. Helos kept reporting the shark getting shallower and shallower as it got closer to the king. Mitchell flying in low and slow trying to line up his shot just as he passed the king. Then the shark broke the surface. You could see it on the radar screen. Fucking thing really was as big as a goddamn frigate. Jesus. There's every sailor's nightmare right there. Mitchell timed it just right. He'd zipped past the king at mast height just then, so that now he was in between the shark and the ship, just as the shark broke the surface. Opening up with my Vulcan,' he said. He had to use his nose cannon, because nobody ever really thought of a way to make an air-to-air missile useful when you're shooting it down a shark's throat. You could hear the buzz from his Vulcan on the radio channel as he let fly. I didn't see what happened next, but we got the radio reports from the helo pilots, and then I debriefed some of them afterwards and a bunch of the boys that were topside on the king watching all this go down and getting ready to die until this last-minute reprieve swooped in. So anyway, according to all these witnesses, Mitchell was flying in dead-on, holding his line, just pouring cannon fire down the throat of this giant fucking shark, still closing in on it. And then, just as he started to pull away, the fucking thing jumped out of the water like a goddamn musky and snatched his tomcat out of the air and ate it. Now, nobody had ever figured out how to make an air-to-air missile useful if you shot it down a shark's throat. But it turned out that the boys at Grooman really never put any thought about into whether they should build the tomcat to survive getting eaten out of the air by a shark. It exploded deep inside the thing's mouth, back behind the gills. This wasn't enough to kill the big white fucker, but it was enough to send it back down deep to think about other things beyond giving us shit. So the task force kept moving on, and Mitchell and his poor Rio became the first real heroes of this stupid kerfluffle. Mitchell's sacrifice wasn't in vain. The shark was indeed driven back into the depths, leaving a bloody slick on the surface of the ocean that was itself soon full of unusually large, but not ship-sized sharks. Task Force 17 continued to cut its way through the steadily escalating creature attacks. Finally, around 7.30 a.m., Delgado concluded that the force had reached a good spot to carry out the actual mission. Winds and currents were both strongly to the east, so dumping our evidence here should get it in a good place to be found by quote-unquote neutral ships. Bracketed by the destroyers Jones and Fitzgerald and the Frigate King, the Flag Island made its way to the eastern edge of the task force formation. Delgado and a work crew pushed the Soviet engine parts that had been lashed to the flight deck of the Flag Island overboard, while the D-69 pilots Delgado refers to as Hickok and Ski Pass scattered the kegged radioactive dust from a low altitude downwind of the ships. The mission was accomplished. All that was left was to get out of the sea monster zone and wait for the evidence to be found. But just as the formation began its turn to get clear, the electronic warfare rooms on every ship in the fleet detected the same thing, an air search radar powering up just a couple of miles to the east of them. And every type of radar in the world had a distinct profile in terms of power, frequency, and rotation speed. And this matched none of them. There was a mad scramble in the CIC of every ship. What the hell was this? Was this Russians? Something else? There'd been rumors about Russian stealth ships. Maybe that's what this was. Great. Great. Just the fucking time for it. And then it powered down, and there was nothing. And that is it for this week. Join me next week as we check back in on what's happening in Washington. Thanks and be well. In my stars are that goddamn sea serpent I see. I ain't ever there. They're squids, they didn't realize who they was attacking. Wake up, you sons of bitches. In this sea,